Welcome to the Macrofab Spooky Engineering Podcast. We are your guests, Hyron. And Zap. And we are your hosts, Crab Foam. And Blitz. This is episode 144. So uh, you guys have probably heard of our guest before, but we'll do a recap. Zepp is the chief bling officer at Anot Exor. During his limited free time, he writes vulnerable C code, dabbles in KeyCAD, and trolls Arduino bot accounts on Twitter. He has never been seen at the same time and places Batman. But then again, neither has Blitz. Hyron is a button pusher, it's easily replaced by a thousand monkeys with a thousand laptops, but manages to crank out firmware and hacker puzzles. If you're reading this statement, he has already rooted your computer. Uh, we have had Zap and Hyron on the podcast before. Check out MEP episode 69, Incognito Mode, and MEP episode 109, Arduino, the gateway drug to hashtag badge life which we also had like 8-bit stream and who else was on it? That had just bit stream, I think. Yeah, just bit stream. Yeah. Just bit stream. It was only three of three of th- uh, three of y'all. Yep. I thought the <laughs> man, that now, now this is getting all mixed up. I thought we this was the fourth time you guys are on this, but I guess it's only been three times. It feels like we're on here every week. <laughs> Podcast. Well, you get you guys are now tied for the the most times on as a guest, so we'll have to have you again to uh, ha- earn the title. Yeah, take that, Joe Grand. <laughs> oh, we should build we should build a title belt for the most times you've been on the podcast, <laughs> like a like a WWE belt, but it's like a big PCB. <laughs> the most uncomfortable belt ever. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have to wear all three shirts at the same time? Now is that how this works? Yeah, at the okay. same time. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll just make sure it happens in the summer so it's incredibly uncomfortable in houston of course in houston. Yeah. <laughs> so at the beginning of the podcast you heard hyron's theremin that he built oh that so nothing amazing behind that other than you know how sometimes you you have thoughts strike you and you go go to google and you're like what is that spooky noise i hear in movies and yeah, it turned into me going on Google, starting to learn about what the hell is a theremin. And it was actually pretty cool when I looked into it. So if the EEs or the sound people like Blitz laugh at me, uh, I had no idea how they worked before. And it was kind of cool to learn. Like, So if you ever seen those, it's a wooden box with two antennas coming out the side and people usually wave their hands next to each antenna to control the pitch and the volume. Um. The way it's working is those are uh, dielectrics, basically, and it doesn't have both plates. So basically, your hand in the air is making a full capacitor. So as you move your hand closer or further away from the antenna, it's affecting the capacitance of the system. So you control the pitch in the antenna. Um, But it oscillates too fast. So they heterodyne it with a different crystal in there to try to lower the frequency down. So it's kind of like you have two half capacitors on there to wave your hands back and forth. what was more interesting to me was I'm looking this up and Leon Theremin, who made it, he called it an ether phone, but uh, cool hacker history, especially because we we run in the DEF CON crowds and deal with a lot of security stuff. I did not know that that device, that music instrument was used to make the first electronic bug. And he made this like back in the 20s. And uh, he went back to Russia just right before World War II ended. And uh, the USSR kidnaps him 
puts them in the gulag and they force him to develop stuff and they tell him they want spy gear. And so he uh, takes a lot of the technology he invented doing the theremin and he takes like the small capacitive membrane connected to an antenna and they hide it inside this wooden engraving and they give it to the ambassador in Moscow and it just kind of sits behind their desk. But since it has this uh, small membrane and like a quarter wavelength antenna that's kind of tuned, um, they would illuminate it with a microwave frequency. So about 100 miles away, they could hit it with 330 megahertz. And it basically is like a plate and antenna with no dielectric. So it takes the vibrations, microwave alters the vibrations, it reflects back and you have a passive microphone that's working from about 100 miles away. Which is crazy because that's like 1946 and he essentially invented like the precursor to RFID all from this weird electronic instrument that turned into a hacker bug. But they're beaming it with a microwave from how far away? A mile away? I uh, know they set up to 100 miles. So 100 miles away. So is, 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 it's either really focused or they're just basically cooking the guy in his office. <laughs> oh, a little bit. I think, I think it was pretty focused, but uh, it got discovered by a British like uh, amateur radio hobbyists because they were blasting it so much. They were on different wavelengths. I think at 800 megahertz or 1200 and they were picking it up and hearing it over FM. So, or over AM. So, uh, it wasn't like they were hiding it too hard. It's just some British hobbyists were like, I can hear some Americans talking about, uh, political secret things. And so, you know, they contacted MI5 and whatnot, and they realized that their office had been bugged for like seven years. Hmm. So kind of cool. We, uh, it's turned in from what's the spooky electronic sounding instrument to, holy shit, this guy was forced to make spy gear out of his electronic instrument, and it turned into bugs and spine for seven years. And I think they have a replica of it at uh, one of the NSA museums or cryptography. or um, There's like the whole spy wing of the NSA museum. You can check that stuff out. The NSA has it easy because we just carry microphones with us everywhere we go. And <laughs> 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 in, in Zap's uh, description that he wrote himself today, <laughs> uh, what are the Arduino bot accounts? Yeah, so uh, one thing I figured out when I was getting frustrated with uh, Arduino, which I talked about the last podcast, um, when you bash Arduino on Twitter, all these Arduino bots start retweeting you. They're just set up based on keywords, and so you're just sitting there like how you know bashing on how bad the IDE is or whatever. Not that there's anything wrong with Arduino; it's a great starter uh, toolkit, but. Yeah, they just start retweeting me. So I used to troll them with purposely putting out bad tweets just to see how far they would amplify it. <laughs> it's always fun messing with. Oh, you know what? I got to give them credit. That theremin, it's open theremin. It's an Arduino hat. Oh, cool. Where, uh, where, where, where can you uh, where can you get it at? Uh, w No, I put the I put the link in your um, in the show notes for you. But yeah, they, um, it's a lab that makes a open theremin hat kind of the cheapest route you can go as opposed to buying a real one. Maybe I should tweet about it and see how many times I can get Arduino bots to retweet me. There you go. <laughs> uh, I, I noticed that the, or one of our podcast competitors, the amp hour, uh, they have, they have a subreddit on, on Reddit. And if you post a link there, the Twitter account for the amp hour will just, it just scrapes it and puts it on Twitter. And uh, I've used that a couple times to advantage. Good <laughs> <laughs> thing about actually just like throwing up like our blog links for the podcast and see if it will see how long it'll take till Chris Camel like figures out what I'm doing. 
Probably not very long. I would guess it would not take long. <laughs> All right, cool. So let's do a quick recap of DEFCON 26 and the newest and not XOR badge before uh, going on. Yeah, so for, for 26, you probably saw it all over Twitter if you follow the DEFCON stuff. Uh, we came back with the Western theme. And it was, yeah, Western, we doubled the number of LEDs. We um, put on our own scripting language called LOL's Code, uh, and that's all fully documented. It's online. Um we also had a puzzle game that Hiron worked uh, tirelessly on, lots and lots of hours on that. It was uh, to teach people some basic hardware hacking skills. People had a lot of fun with that. Uh, also brought back our botnet and um, let's see what else we did. Anyone get control of your botnet this time? No. Uh, one one of our major issues this year was for the the sheriff star on Bender's hat. That was that had to be a ground plane. And the ESP32 was on the opposite side of that. So that actually caused a lot of interference with the RF. So the range we were getting was on the order of about 10 to 20 feet. The year before, we were getting 100 to 200 feet uh, in some cases. So it, it didn't really get taken over. I put a lot of time in encrypting the botnet as well. So the two, those two factors um, kept people out of it, which was unfortunate because we actually enjoyed it when people took over the botnet. I know it's a weird push and pull because before we left a little open, we got stressed out, but you're right. It's a fun game to try to take control back. And then we're like, all right, we're going to secure this and see what happens. And that's just boring. <laughs> Need to loosen it up a bit. You should, you should heavily secure it, but then just like the encryption password is just like password or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's, a, that's actually the kind of things we do. So funny story and actually uh macrofab would like this. So, we built in a way uh, to do over-the-air updates uh, from Raspberry Pi. So they get within range of a Raspberry Pi, detect that, hey, there's a new firmware update available for me, uh, connect to it over Wi-Fi, pull down the, the firmware, and then flash itself. Uh, and then basically the flashing itself was reading from the SD card because uh, we, we, we couldn't do the two, uh, the two images in flash sort of thing. Well, uh, we encrypted it. The problem was when I did the encryption originally, I used a key of 11223344 and so on. And I had that in our bootloader and then shipped that off to you guys when you did the production. Uh, so all their bootloaders <laughs> are set up with that super secure private key. And then I changed the private key after the fact. And then when we started getting these things in, uh, none of them were flashing with our firmware. And that was why. So people could actually override with their own firmware if they knew the key. Um, so it's kind of unfortunate, but a little funny story. So I'm uh, so I'm curious about uh, the, the the badge. The, the, you know, I had actually received one, gosh, a handful of months ago, and thank you for sending that to me, guys. And I played around with it for a while. Actually, I, I took it to work and gave it to a handful of other people and had them kind of run through it. And just kind of handling it for a few minutes, you realize that there's a lot of stuff on it and stuff might just be the right descriptor there <laughs> just all kinds of stuff that what i'm what i'm curious about is have you guys or do you guys know if everything has been unlocked by at least one person i mean ha are there still secrets lying in that badge that no one has found there there's always secrets we put things pretty deep in there um referen references or um secret things that that means something to us. We do know that somebody was able to unlock all 16 unlocks. Uh, a guy, I think George 
Callow. Yeah. Uh, he has a Curious George uh, icon on Twitter. He's actually from San Diego. Uh, but yeah, he unlocked everything. I asked him in person, did you do it with, you know, after the source code was released? And he said no. So that was pretty impressive because one of them was modifying an intentionally broken Lulz code file. And he was able to solve that. Uh, we do know one guy has also solved the puzzle, uh, the hardware puzzle before the, the source code was released as well. So, Stephen, also in that badge, I don't know if you've played around with it too much, but there's a uh, text adventure in that. I, I don't think I don't think I got to that. and you know I accidentally left it at work. I was gonna bring it and have you guys uh walk me through some stuff on the podcast, but I'm dumb and I left it at work. Well, I'll I'll be going through some of that at Hackaday this weekend, but um definitely plug it in. I mean if 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 you open up Minicom or Putty, um you log Putty works really well. Yeah, and you'll think of like Zork on our call. Okay. It's um and by the way, when I showed it to Ben, we were back there. Ben Hag was like, why don't you have NSE or W? Because I was having it type walk north, walk south, walk east, walk west. So I put that in there to make sure I was compliant with the old school type games. I completely forgot. But you basically have like this uh, console based RPG. But instead of solving or playing a game that's completely, you know, text based or contextual, uh, it's extended all the badge hardware. So in one area, you know, joking around, I, and by the way, I asked all of them ahead of time, I could use their names in vain. Like I have Joe Grand running on a treadmill to power something and you have to crack a, a pin pad on there, which I got from a, a lesson Joe was giving on side channel analysis. So for someone to go through that, they have to realize when you type in a pin, if you type a wrong digit, it's actually going to complete the cycle faster because it's going to break the loop where it's checking your password. So by doing that, a normal person wouldn't be able to see it. But if you hook up a logic analyzer or an O-scope, you can actually look at the clock line or look at the data and, and see that as you get closer, the delay gets longer as it takes time for something to complete. And, and I guess the whole point with these puzzles, which is really awesome, is I had dozens of people, like I left my DMs open, people are emailing me, messaging me, asking for hints. But I had people tell me, like, I've never used a logic analyzer before. Or I've never used an O-scope before. I went to the hardware hacking village. Someone taught me. Or even someone said, hey, I went and got a bus pirate. And they still work as a really shitty logic analyzer, but they work. And they're like, hey, I was able to like actually look at the I-squared-C line and see what's going on. And it's not so scary. Thanks for you know giving me an excuse to learn something new. And I basically, that's kind of what every puzzle is like. We had a hardware hacking, a wireless, a cryptography puzzle. Um packet capture stuff. But I, I think that's what we try to do where the puzzles aren't necessarily hard, but it is something where someone can learn a new skill set and it may force them to go, you know, into one of the villages, talk to someone new, make some friends and uh, just kind of expand their, their life toolbox of things they know how to do. So, mm -hmm. and hell, the more people that understand hardware, the better, right? Exactly. That's and what this podcast is all about. Sure. <laughs> so, so just for those who don't know, can you explain what the, the villages are? Uh, think of it like, you know, you go to a conference, there's big talks going on. Villages are more focused areas on certain skill sets. So like if you were to go to the hardware hacking village, everyone is going to be very focused on soldering, electronics, um, 
how would you dump firmware? How would you extract flash from an EEPROM or serial flash? Whereas like if you were to go to the packet capture village, people are really into teaching folks how to use wireless and Wireshark and how to do packet analysis and decrypt packets that you may have caught on the network. So very different um, skill sets and focused areas. But uh, what happens at those kind of conferences is people stick to what they know so, you know, they'll go to DEF CON and maybe never even step foot into another village because it's like, oh, I don't know anything about wireless or I don't know anything about hardware. So to complete the puzzle, I tried to make sure that there were four completely different distinct types of challenges where if you didn't know what you were doing, you would have to go to these different areas to kind of get, you know, learned up on. And I just encourage people, you know, bring a six pack of beer, give someone a beer, make a friend, say, teach me something and I'll do what I can. That's a really good um, uh, philosophy for the hardware and and software uh, puzzles. What bringing a six pack of beer? That and <laughs> no, and, and and making them something that different uh, genres, so to speak, of engineering and and tech philosophy or uh, what's a good word for it. Um, just uh, disciplines. 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 That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, we, we want you to level <laughs> up and something. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so we talked about all the puzzles. What's the engineering process behind like the hardware and software design? Uh, yeah, so if you saw our Hackaday talk last year or uh, CypherCon talk, we follow a basic system engineering process where we we come we come together as a group, uh, usually over a couple months. This time we actually started back in uh, back in June, I think, for for DefCon twenty seven. Uh, but just collecting all these ideas. Um, and then taking those ideas and figuring out, okay, so where's some commonality? What sort of hardware do they need? Uh, going from that that hardware, figuring out, well, this idea, it's the only thing that needs a speaker, right? Uh, is it really worth placing a speaker and all the associated components that go with it and all of the peripherals are required on a microcontroller to do that one idea? And so we may go through and make the hard decision of, nope, we're not going to do it. Uh, and so that's kind of the process we're in now of, of necking down that to kind of a a high level bill of materials, and then we can go into prototyping. Um, so you, you take all that, kind of throw it into one big spreadsheet, figure out what your bill of materials is. Is it realistic, uh, you know, with respect to your budget? Uh, do you have sponsors or do you think people are willing to pay for this? Does it fit in your design? How do you manufacture it? And those sorts of things. At the same time, uh, Hiron or myself are in the background also writing firmware and drivers and things and starting to kind of pull the whole system together. That's basically a talk that we gave at Hackaday in about two minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, like, say, yeah, then there's like iterative testing because yeah. you have a couple of people working on stuff, you know, we're going to step on each other's toes and break things at times. So um, after we get past our first prototype and we know what we're doing and we have like a, a first type of board, not just like a hat that sits on a dev board, um, it's usually, hey, someone's working on something cool. I'm working on something. We merge our Git repository and then a quick regression test every week or two to figure out something. And then you go, oh, shit, you broke something. And it's like, no, you broke something. And I'm like, all right, one of us broke something and this doesn't work anymore. And now it's, you know, iteratively go through and make make stuff, break it, re-engineer, reintegrate it, and keep doing that until we hit, I think for us, about April, May timeframe. 
like kind of our operational test, we we go to a, a, a conference called Layer One in Pasadena or LA in general that's held every May. And we try to stop ourselves from adding new features anytime past May. And then just pull out all the bug fixes for the next two months until we release. So you stop uh, you stop feature uh, creeping in April? Yeah, it's hard, but we usually create a spreadsheet and that's where all the ideas start getting dumped in. It's where, where it's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if, you, well, you know what? We'll throw it in the spreadsheet. We'll start working on it for the next year. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, and, and it sounds like you guys are starting earlier and earlier for each year now, right? Is there is there overlap between badges? Uh, yes. So the first year was about a nine-month project, nine to ten months maybe. The second year was a 11 to 12 month project and this year is 13. So we were writing ideas and researching. I was researching microcontrollers while we were delivering and fixing last year's badges. So I don't know if we can sustain this, you know, longer and longer cycle times, but it's fun though. It oh, is. We, Eventually you're going to start two badges at the same time. Yeah. Well, we, we did take a quick break. We we uh we had a visit out to DerbyCon in Louisville, Kentucky about a month ago, eh, beginning of October. And uh we made 50 little cockroach badges for Trevor the cockroach and grifter and uh we just hand soldered them, made 50 ones with like a little at tiny 817 on there. And that was kind of fun to have something with only like 8k of RAM. <laughs> No, no, 500 <laughs> bytes of RAM. <laughs> 512 bytes of RAM. It, it's nice having that limitation. So like, all right, I can uh, write some interrupts, do a little embedded console, and uh, just hand them out to people saying, hack this and you win. Yeah, so one of the <laughs> one of the interesting design uh, things about badges is a lot of groups want to put a display on there. That's actually a huge driver of the overall bill of materials. Right. So if you want to put a large, uh, like an ILI 9341, that's very popular. You can get them on eBay, China, whatever. But those are very large screens. Uh, they It takes a lot of memory just to drive one of those effectively. And so that's going to drive all sorts of stuff in your design as far as how fast your spy bus is, how much RAM you need in the microcontroller. Um, how much software you need to write for it. How much software you need to write for it. Yeah, uh, yeah do how many Adafruit... Um, Libraries are going to go borrow to to go interface with this thing. So. <laughs> you know, it's but, actually it's actually funny um, that you bring that up. Is it's the same thing in the pinball world where uh, when we were running, you know, at first you were running like character displays uh, for the first like ten years. Um, this is like digital pinball machines, and then you go and you have Adafruit pinball library. <laughs> not maybe not yet, but then they moved to sixteen segment alphanumeric displays. And, oh. oh, that's that's fancy. We're going over seven segment, right? So you basically have to double the amount of RAM you have to address basically the double amount of segments. And then dot matrix happened. And dot matrix at first was like four colors or four shades and 128 by 32 pixels. And now we're at HD. And it's it's not so much RAM as the problem or because because now like RAM and storage is cheap, like SD cards are really cheap. The problem is making the content. Because before you just had text scroll on the screen. And then after that, you had like, you know, low resolution pixel art that anyone can make. But now you have to do in full HD graphics that you have to like pay someone and to draw. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just have an engineer do the art. Mm -mm. Well, it's like you're going to go on fiber. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, Piper. <laughs> I mean, just, just for perspective, our last year's badge was 220 by 176, and we used 16 bits per pixel. And that was about 77 kilobytes per frame. Right. So if I want to fully buffer that, that's a lot of RAM. Uh, and the SP32, and we'll get into that later, I think, uh, didn't have that much available for me. Um, but our first year, we used an STM32F103. That only had 20K of RAM. So right away, I'm already more than three times my hmm. initial RAM budget for my first badge. So yeah, th those displays all the way up and down the bill materials, they drive almost everything. You know, you didn't bring it up earlier, or you didn't explicitly say it, but when we said we're, we go through like listing all our ideas and everything we want to do, in the spreadsheet, we're still pulling out technical specs and details from like all the potential chips and peripherals because you've had people come up to us say, you know, they'll hold out, a, they're figuratively holding out a chip in their hand and say, I want to make a badge or I want to make something and use this. And they already have a, I want to use an ESP or I want to use, you know, an STM32. And I look at that from an engineering perspective and go, no, don't, don't do that. Figure out what you want to do and pick the right piece of hardware that's going to support it. You know, don't, don't pre-guess or preset yourself on some MCU or some whatever, because until you figure out all the different peripheral requirements, you could quickly shoehorn yourself and find out eh, I'm out of Ram or um, I spy doesn't have enough you know bandwidth to support one or you need more adcs or you needed a dma bus or something like that yeah well but but i think i think you're kind of hitting something on the head there that kind of separates uh different different groups of thoughts there where it's yeah i might you know someone might pick a stm32 because there is hordes of support behind that as opposed to the wild wild west of having to read a data sheet and figure out you know, something else, you know, but learning's fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> to an extent, to an extent. Well, yeah. So for us, this is not really a, I mean, this is a hobby, so it's not really uh, a money-making venture. So I, I try to maximize non-recurring engineering. If that makes any sense. Right. So I think Parker on a previous podcast, you mentioned that there was a question about this in the Slack channel that, Hey, do you use what's familiar with you or do you go and try to use something different? I'm always on to, Hey, what can I find that's different? That's why I went with the SP32. It wasn't ARM. We'd done ARM two years in a row. Had some interesting experiences, but it worked. Um, so that that's kind of our, our goal because we're trying to learn just as much as we're trying to teach. And it's, if it's not if we're not learning something new, we're not going to keep doing this. No, that totally makes sense. And I, I actually like the idea of basically going because uh, I've actually never designed a product like this, which is it's kind of open ended at the beginning. It's like it needs to be a badge and look pretty, right? And blink. Like that's the initial overall arch of the product, right? Whereas what else it does, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> I guess. It's like it has a you, like you you're basically picking features and then figuring out okay, like with a Venn diagram basically, and like what's as the most amount of features we can capture in the least amount of hardware, and go from there, which is a completely different interesting way of doing product development. Right. And it's fun because then creativity and all those things where you're like, man, I wish I had an excuse to do fill in the blank. It's a perfect project to do stuff like that. If we can, you know, reasonably tie everything together where we'll mm -hmm. do stuff and be like, or like last year, I don't know anything about Bluetooth. Hey, let's figure out how Bluetooth works. I've never touched that before. And, and just, you know, repeat that kind of thought process over and over. 
Yeah, it's a wouldn't it be cool if engineering, right? Exactly. Yeah, because our, our day jobs, we don't really get a lot of choice in, in that sort of things, right? It's the same thing day to day to day, uh, delivering products that, you know, have decade lifespans. Uh, so that's that's not quite as interesting as let me go go mess with something that's brand new that I keep seeing on Hackaday or on Twitter. Uh, let me go play with it and see what happens. Yeah, it, it is kind of weird, too, because like you bring up, usually it's we have customers. Customers want this go make this for your customers. And with this project we're doing, it's like, no, we're doing this for ourselves. And uh, if people want them, they can come get them. That's great. But uh, initially we're doing this for us to, to learn what we can learn. And um, so far people seem to like it and it, it seems to work out all right. And we can have fun doing it. So one of the first new things y'all used on this year's badge was the ESB32. So how was that experience? Uh, it was hit or miss. Um, let's let's so, be nice. The pros, the pros of the ESP. Okay, so the pros. <laughs> so you get a whole lot of specs for nothing. Um, I mean, next to nothing. Four dollars for a ESP32 rover. You have four megabytes of RAM and or four and a half megabytes of RAM and you know two. That's cores. why y'all picked picked it, right? Yeah, and actually, so going back to the screen, right? So if I needed seventy-seven kilobytes of of RAM per frame. If I want to fully buffer this, then do animations with the menu and then do Rickroll at 30 frames per second. I need a lot of RAM. So that's why we, that, that was actually on your spec sheet, 30 FPS Rickroll. Yes. It, it, <laughs> it's, it's a standard back of the envelope design constraint that we throw up front. So that way we know, Hey, I need this much memory to do this. Yeah. We had 1.2 gigabytes of data on the SD cards. Uh, and 303 megabytes of that was the Rickroll video. <laughs> priorities. Yeah, priorities. Yeah, priorities. And that was also the first thing we tested once, you know, once I had the display driver running, you know, how do we, how fast can we really push this? The ESP32 has a really nice spy bus. I think it'll go up to 80 megahertz. Uh, the year before we did a Nordic NRF52, that was only 8 megahertz. So we were severely limited. Here we could push video as fast as we could, as fast as we wanted. It also had a, a four-bit wide uh, SDIO peripheral to the SD card, so we could pull data off the SD card extremely fast. And that's it was, so it had so it, it actually was using the four-bit SD card interface. Yeah. Um, so if we want to switch over to the cons of the conversation, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, I'll be fair. Yeah, yeah, go for that. We'll yes. walk back and forth. <laughs> uh, so, um, so SD cards, if you follow us on Twitter at all, you'll see around my, maybe mid-July when our Kickstarters start getting their badges that we're, we got a lot of issues with the SD cards. Um, one thing, when you buy SD cards, there's a high probability that they're counterfeit, especially if you're buying them in high quantities and you're looking for the cheapest cost. We had an issue there, so we had a lot that were not meeting their specs. They're just bad from the get-go. They worked when we tested them and shipped, but then they you know, failed soon after, um, the four bit mode, there are some issues with some crosstalk or shorts or something be that was occurring within the ESP32 module, uh, because I think the high, uh, ROHS reflow may have caused some, caused some issues within the module. Um, which I mean, it is what it is. We ended up having to replace some of the modules and, and fixing that. Uh, we are also over specking it. We're, a lot of, it turns out SD cards can only really go about 26 megahertz. We were pulling at about 40. Uh, so we were just <laughs> pushing these things a lot harder than they should. Ended up, at the end of the day, we ended up dropping to one bit mode, running at 
10 megahertz and uh, I think that I'm ignoring the um, the card detect pin. That was the other one because there were some issues with some with that shorting to ground and not detecting the SD card. In the end, it worked, but we had a lot of issues with corruption. Ba- uh, if the badge would make contact with another, sometimes it ground out while it was doing a write, which it did every 10 seconds, and that would corrupt the file system. Uh, so overall, the SD card experience was really, really bad. Um, You're going to move over to like spinner disks, right? Yeah, we're going to put uh, 120 megabyte hard drives, magnetic hard drives on the badges next year. So they're going to weigh about 20 pounds. It'd be great. <laughs> Actually, I wonder if you can still buy the hard drives they put in the Gen 1 iPods. Little spinners in there. Oh, those things. Those things are great. I think those are, were they like two and a half inches or one and a half inches? They're pretty small. Yeah, one and a half. Yeah. Laptop hard drives. But anyway, I mean, you're bringing up Espressif and you're talking about the SD cards. Just because something allows you to do it doesn't mean you should do it. And we implemented it. We are cranking it fast because the ESP IDF allows you to do that. And it tells you, here's your limits. Only then when we start getting failures and read into it, realized, oh, and you shouldn't do that to an SD card, even though you're allowed to do it. (laughs) I mean, yeah. And and like similar to how you brought up the STM32. I mean, sometimes you want to pick something because a lot of people are using it. There's a lot of examples. There's a huge community behind it. And that was nice. Um, so that's a pro in that respect. Um, but we started really realizing that it is a way to, it's like a, it's like the new kind of Arduino. It's a, it's a intermediate level for Arduino where you can proto some prototype something on ESP 32 board really quickly and really easily. Their SDK has tons of examples and you can do stuff really fast, but it's like it's made as a plugged-in IoT device. Um, power management, for example, which I'll, I'll kick back over to Zap. You know, uh, until the drivers, or until the, the low power mode started working, how much power were we drawing just using Bluetooth and the regular, you know, system and package and everything? So I measured, while I was running Bling, it was running about 175 milliamps at... Um, I think at 2.8 volts in, which is you know, nominal for two double A's, uh, which was about three to four times what we were pulling the year before. Uh, we pride ourselves on on battery life that we can provide. And that was only maybe about 16 hours of battery life on the two batteries that we yeah. gave. I mean, and can, consider you can run a Raspberry Pi W headless at 120 milliamps. So to have that thing cooking at 170 is, is nuts. Yeah, and they... So what they added, they added a, a thing called modem sleep to the the Bluetooth modem. They added it in late May. So after we'd already frozen. And so, <laughs> and of course, it never introduces bugs because it totally did. Mm-hmm. Um, that got us down to about 120 milliamps. And then uh, right before we shipped, I got us down to about 96 and was able to fix some bugs. But we'd have issues where we would turn that on and then suddenly the, the console game would crash. We're like, what's going on? Why is this crashing? Well, it turns out that the console game was using the UART peripheral too long, and it was crashing the, the Bluetooth modem in their, their little binary blob for the modem. And you had no idea. They didn't give you a stack trace because it was just a blob. So you had no idea where that crash was occurring or why. And we finally figured out, if you just hold down the A key in the console game for like 30 seconds, it would crash the modem. It was just these, this bizarre interaction. So as, as Hiron said, where they're really good for one thing, 
Like here's an IoT device that downloads the stuff for Wi-Fi and turns on a light switch or, or light. That's fine. But when you're doing console and you're doing Bluetooth and you're managing this botnet and you're running LEDs in a display all at the same time, there's all sorts of interesting race conditions and interactions that occur there that you didn't expect. Yeah. It sounds like it's not been vetted really well. So, yeah. Um, so, so I mentioned the, ID, the IDF is being updated constantly. They also don't document uh, a lot of the details of the hardware that well. Like the way that they allocate memory in DMA is really, really poor. Um, they only You have four megabytes on a, on a rover, but really only 500K of that is is natively accessible and only about 80k of that 500k is available to dma which is all, what all the peripherals need well if you use a malloc which almost everything the system does it allocates the dma memory first so you start getting these crazy crashes where you suddenly can't write to the display because you started using an extra 200 bytes on your stack in your console game which was another error we had um it just it, it'd be nice to get those application notes you see you know ti st Nordic, all the all the major vendors, they give you these application notes and, sh- and show you the architectural details behind their their hardware. We just didn't get that with Espressive, and understood the way that they the way they allocated memory or the way that they uh, prioritized peripherals. Now, one one of the craziest things that drove me nuts, you were bringing up the UART peripheral. I mean, if we haven't said this already, um, Espressive, like the ESP thirty two, it is a system in package. It's not a system on chip. It's not a single die. So you peel off that metal frame and you have maybe five or six different manufacturers that supply peripherals to Espressif. They solder it all together and put a cap on it. Um, their UART and their Wi-Fi, excuse me, not their UART, their, apologize, their Wi-Fi is made by someone else. So when I was doing the Wi-Fi puzzle, uh, when I was doing the puzzle game and I had a Wi-Fi challenge in one of the puzzles, um, Normally, it would color code log messages, you know, red or green, depending on the level of the log. It didn't catch my eye that they were gray. And so when I finally turned off logging, because what the last thing you want someone to see when they're doing like an embedded challenge at a command line is all the shit that's going on in the background. It was saying, oh, the website it was connecting to all the different keys it was doing. And I, I could not for the life of me figure out what the heck was going on. Their uh, subcontractor just dumps all their messages to the UART line. They don't use the logging API. They just printf everything. (laughs) (laughs) And the fix in the SDK was literally running a bash script. And this is under CM. You can check it out. It's a running a bash script that takes their Wi-Fi module and reroutes all the log messages to null, which is probably the dirtiest thing you could do in programming. Uh, in a recent fix, they finally updated the the firmware for the Wi-Fi, so it doesn't do that anymore. But you know, they're even though they're open source, the the firmware for these peripherals is closed source. You don't get it. You can't do anything. And so I'm sitting there like, really, you want me to just reroute the printfs to null and waste memory and do all this kind of stuff? Well. That also made me think I want to find off the shelf stuff running Espressive and just crack it open and, you know, run a serial or USB to UART adapter onto their lines because you'll see everything that's going on in there because there was literally no way to turn it off unless you ran a manual bash script and edited all your header files. Now, is that stuff, is that under the can though, or is it, or do those UART lines come out to the outside of the module? 
Oh, they're they're exposed on the pins. Oh, so you can easily hack a expressive uh, device then. Oh yeah. So yeah. those lines are just being clogged all the time with just yeah. useless well, information. Like I said, when it, when they, when they hit a three their SDK, they finally resolved it with an updated firmware. But for everything for the past two years, it's just been dumping it. Like if you were running the, if you had any kind of logging on, it would print it straight to the UART line, which is great. What if you're trying to make a maintenance console on your product? Like you don't want to see that stuff on there. Well, this is the thing is when will OEM, OEMs won't update their, their files. So, <laughs> so if you designed it, if you designed it within the last two years, it's going to still have that issue. Oh. We know how good they are at updating IoT devices. <laughs> oh, they're probably already patched. So to put a to put a cherry on that, here's the here's the craziest <laughs> thing that they did. And I was so happy at first when I saw you know they actually tried to address security. So on most MCUs, you know, you usually have a security bit where you can set, you know, readback protection, zero, one, or two. So either you prevent it completely or you I mean, can- I have no idea where you're setting bits to two, man. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you! <laughs> it's one of those crazy Russian tertiary systems, or whatever they call those. But uh, you, you know what I mean. We we can set readout protection to prevent people from dumping your firmware, looking for strings, things like that. Um, they actually had secure boot and flash encryption built in. So, like what Zap was talking about, we could put keys on there so someone can't shim a bootloader in there, or they can't put firmware on there unless it's trusted. And even the flash has AES two fifty six encryption, where you know, unless you have like a chip whisper and you're calling O'Flynn and you want to side channel crack it, I mean, that's more security than you see on most IoT devices, except for the fact that they only let you flash four times. So you're given all this consideration to security. You do the initial flash. And if you're are actually security conscious, you're going to provide patch updates and security updates. And that means your product only gets three patches in its life cycle. And then it's toast. It will not let you flash anymore after that. So that's, that's a weird. Yeah, it has three. It has four fuses. And every time you flash, it burns one of them. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what the physical limitation is to that. It's it's an odd design constraint to me. That's actually why we didn't use it. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> we, we were getting ready to do that. So, you know, you're doing a, a puzzle game. You don't want people dumping the flash off your badge and just reading the strings and cheating. And we're like, oh, we'll encrypt it. And you go, holy shit, I think it. I copied and pasted in here. It actually says after the fourth encryption, it is disabled. The E-Fuse has the maximum value and it's permanently disabled. And that's an expressive documentation. Hmm. That's just so, weird. Yeah, it's weird to see someone put that much effort into security and then say, but you're only limited to four updates on the chip and then you're done. So, yep, there's IoT security. <laughs> and and, and, and no, the thing is, is, what is that preventing someone from doing in the field yeah it's really only the readback protection you should care about if somebody overwrites it with their own firmware who cares right they brick their device yeah but they don't have any of your ip i i think their consideration was it's it's become pretty trivial to trick readback protection i mean if you really want to you can decap a chip and flash the right bit or you can do like a row hammer attack and flip the bit and and still pull something out they you can do that to STM32s pretty easily, but um, 
I think instead of using readback protection, they went the route of, well, we're just going to encrypt everything on the flash and who knows why there's a fuse or four fuses, including the first one. That's what I'm wondering is why even put that in there. Someone thought that was a good idea to implement. Yeah. (laughs) I think what it comes down to is I am happy. I learned about a, you know, extensa, architecture and esp32 um there's a lot of like juicy ram and storage and all these peripherals on it but it's because it's not an efficient architecture or sdk so they got to throw all those ram and processing at it so it can handle all that and it's not exactly meant as a wearable i mean it cooks a lot of power so i think we may be going back to arm arm is a is a good architecture for uh portable devices is it is it risk V or risk five? Risk, I think it's risk five. Well, I, I would keep wanting to say risk V, but yeah, I think it's risk five. Ooh, I would like risk V. Yeah, I like risk V as well. We're gonna we're gonna start that trend on this podcast. Oh, it's now risk V. It's now risk V. <laughs> so so you, you guys have already migrated over, right? When you say you think you might, you already have, right? Oh, excuse me. Yeah, we're not using espresso again, but nope. um who knows if we're going to go ARM or RISC-V. I think we're down selecting the processor at this point. Yeah, we've already made one microcontroller change um, to something a lot more supported. So I, I mentioned it's nice having all those application notes. I've got those on next year's microcontroller, so I feel a lot more comfortable. Um, but yeah, definitely off of Extenza. And so I guess before we end this podcast... Uh, at this Friday, y'all are at the uh, Hackaday Supercon, right? Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, so Friday, um, Friday at three thirty at Supreme Headquarters. Yep. So they're starting Supercon earlier. Usually it starts on Saturday. I, usually, I mean, this is maybe the fourth or fifth one, but it's usually Saturday and Sunday. And now they have some talks that start at noon uh, at their headquarters, and then they have a little party after that. And then they roll into the main conference Saturday and Sunday. So we get to get our talk out of the way. Uh, we get to have a little party, a little free food, free drinks. and be great. Um, and one thing, so the talk is on the hardware puzzles that Hiram's mentioned. It's also on Lulz Code. Uh, if you haven't heard of Lulz Code, you should Google it. L-U-L-Z-C-O-D-E. Uh, but that was our little scripting language we embedded in the badge this year. Uh, basically, it's an extension of LOL Code. <laughs> You don't need to know C to make your hardware work. You can talk in cat speak. I was about to say, you can talk in memes. Yeah. <laughs> so you can write things like, is left? Oh, really? Yeah, really. GTFO. Bad kidda. Oh, I see. <laughs> That's an if <laughs> Yeah, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> it helps to read it out loud. But I, I spent 10 months writing that, writing Lowell's code and extending the language and, and writing a lot of the, the scripts that actually drove the UI on the badge. So that was a lot of fun. But yeah, the, the talk's going to be on that. So that's actually a fun way to troll people too, because if they wanted to hack the badge and change how it works, you know, sometimes people use MicroPython and put it on an SD. All of our source code was read off the SD card in real time from those files. But I wish I could have seen people's faces when they open up the files and go, what the f- is this? <laughs> <laughs> but now you got to do it in in either ASCII uh, symbols or in uh, uh, emot- emoticons. 
Oh man, uh, we could use the, the toy makers "tis but a scratch," but in emoticons. Oh, yes, T Baz. <laughs> T Baz. Oh, that's great. So, so, so we're, we are actually what 10, 10 months away now from DefCon twenty seven. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, usually happens in August, right? August eighth. Yeah. Oh, I can feel the crunch already. Yeah, we're less than three hundred days away, but who's counting? So, so we would we would love to be the uh, the first with uh, some some juicy secrets on what's happening in DefCon twenty seven. You want to share anything? Uh, yeah, we're gonna bring a, a vegetable form of power to the badge. Uh, I don't know if you know, but potatoes can provide power. So bring your potatoes, your favorites from Idaho. Um, no, we don't we don't have any secrets to share. Um, really, weren't planning to share anything, but we're probably gonna go stealth mode until the very last minute. Ah, uh, so no, 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 uh, no, no bender themes to give away yet. No, okay. uh, although things are going to be pretty radically different next year. Uh, we've we've done three years. We you know kind of had a trilogy, I guess you'd say, of bender theme badges, and I think people know what we're capable of, and so you'll see something completely different next year. Although just as much effort, just as much polish as we've done in the past. That sounds pretty rad. Yeah. So, do you have anything else, Stephen? I think I'm good. I, I mean, uh, Blitz. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Zat Pyron, would you like to sign us out? Yeah, sure thing. Well, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your guests, Hyron and Zap. <laughs> and we were your hosts, Crab Foam. And Blitz. You know, this episode wasn't that spooky. No, it wasn't. Well, we talked about ESP32. Hi, Ron. Yeah, give give us give us some more spook. That's all spooky I can do. I need to go carve a pumpkin right now. Catch y'all later, guys. Take it easy. See ya later. Thank you, Yesu, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or badge idea that you want Stephen and I to discuss, tweet us at MacFab or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.